Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. I went down yesterday to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, that I might offer up my prayers to the goddess. Bendis, the Thracian Artemis, and also because I wanted to see in which manner they would celebrate the festival, which was the new thing. I was delighted with the procession of the inhabitants, but that of the Thracians was equally, if not more, beautiful. When we had finished our prayers and viewed the spectacle, we turned in the direction of the city, and at that instant, Polemarchus, the son of Cephalus, chanced to catch a sight of us, from a distance as we were starting on our way home and told his servant to run and bid us to wait for him. The servant took hold of me by the cloak behind and said, Polemarchus desires you to wait. I turned round and asked him where his master was. There he is, said the youth, coming after you, if you will only wait. Certainly we will, said Glaucon, and in a few minutes Polemarchus appeared, and with him Adamantus, Glaucon's brother, Miseratus, the son of Nicias, and several others who had been at the procession. Polemarchus said to me, I perceive, Socrates, that you and your companion are already on your way to the city. You're not far wrong, I said. But do you see, he rejoined, how many we are? Of course. And are you the strongest of all these? For if not, you will have to remain where you are. May there not be an alternative, I said, that we may persuade you to let us go? But can you persuade us? If we refuse to listen to you, he said. Certainly not, replied Glaucon. Then we are not going to listen. Of that you may be assured, Adamantus added. Has no one told you of the torch race on horseback in honour of the goddess, which will take place in the evening? With horses, I replied. That is a novelty. Will horsemen carry torches and pass them one to another during the race? Yes, said Polemarchus, and not only so, but a festival will be celebrated at night, which you certainly ought to see. Let us rise soon after supper and see this festival. There will be a gathering of young men, and we will have a good talk. Stay then. Glaucon said, I suppose since you insist that we must. Very good, I replied. Accordingly, we went with Polemarchus to his house. And there we found his brothers, Lysias and Eutetimus, and with them, Thrasymachus, the Chalcedonian, Shemantites, the Pinean, and Clytophon, the son of Aristonymus. There too was Cephalus, the father of Polemarchus, whom I had not seen for a long time, and I thought him very much aged. He was seated on a cushioned chair, and had a garland on his head, for he had been sacrificing in the court. And there were some other chairs in the room, arranged in a semicircle, upon which we sat down by him. He saluted me eagerly, and then he said, You don't come to see me, Socrates, as often as you ought. If I were still able to go and see you, I would not ask you to come to me. But at my age I can hardly get to the city, and therefore you should come oftener to Piraeus. For let me tell you, that the more the pleasures of the body fade away, the greater to me is the pleasure and charm of conversation. Do not then deny my request, but make our house your resort and keep company with these young men. We are old friends, and you will be quite at home with us. 
I replied, there is nothing for which my part I like better, Cephalus, than conversing with aged men, for I regard them as travellers who have gone through a journey which I too may have to go to, and of whom I ought to inquire, whether the way is smooth or easy, or rugged and difficult, and this is a question which I should like to ask of you, who have arrived at a time which the poets call the threshold of age. Is life harder towards the end, or what report do you give of it? I will tell you, Socrates, he said, what my own feeling is. Men of my age flock together. We are birds of a feather, as the old proverb says. At our meetings the tale of my acquaintance commonly is, I cannot eat, I cannot drink, the pleasures of youth and love are fled away, and life is no longer life. Some complain of the slights which are put upon them by relations, and they will tell you sadly of how many evils their old age is the cause. But to me, Socrates, these complainers seem to blame that which is not really in fault. For if old age were the cause, I too being old, and every other old man, would have felt as they do. But this is not my own experience, nor that of others whom I have known. How well I remember the aged poet Sophocles, when in answer to the question, How does love suit with age, Sophocles? Are you still the man you were? Peace, he replied. Most gladly I have escaped the thing of which you speak. I feel as if I had escaped from a mad and furious master. His words have often occurred in my mind since, and they seem as good to me now as at the time when he uttered them. For certainly old age has a great sense of calm and freedom. When the passions relax their hold, then, as Sophocles says, we are freed from the grasp not of one mad master only, but many. The truth is, Socrates, that these regrets and also the complaints about relations, are to be attributed to the same cause, which is not old age, but men's characters and tempers. For he who is of a calm and happy nature will hardly feel the pressure of age, but to him who is of the opposite disposition, youth and age are equally a burden. I listened in admiration and wanted to draw him out, that he might go on. Yes, Cephalus, I said, but I rather suspect that people in general are not convinced by you when you speak thus. They think that old age sits lightly upon you, not because of your happy disposition, but because you are rich, and wealth is well known to be a great comforter. You are right, he replied. They are not convinced, and there is something in what they say, not, however, so much as they imagine. I might answer them as Themistocles answered the Seraphian who was abusing him, and saying that he was famous not for his own merits, but because he was an Athenian. If you had been a native of my country, or I of yours, neither of us would have been famous. And to those who are not rich and are impatient of old age, the same reply may be made. For to the good poor man, old age cannot be a light burden nor can a bad rich man ever have peace with himself. May I ask, Cephalus, whether your fortune was for the most part inherited or acquired by you? Acquired, Socrates. Do you want to know how much I acquired? In the art of making money, I have been midway between my father and grandfather, for my grandfather, whose name I bear, doubled and trebled the value of his patrimony, that being which he inherited being much what I possess now. 
But my father Lysanus reduced the property below what it is at present, and I shall be satisfied if I leave these to my sons, not less, but little more than I received. That was why I asked you the question, I replied, because I see that you are indifferent about money, which is a characteristic rather of those who have inherited their fortunes than those who have acquired them. The makers of fortunes have a second love of money as a creation of their own, resembling the affection of authors for their own poems or of parents for their children, besides that natural love of it for the sake of use and profit, which is common to them all and all men. And hence they are very bad company, for they can talk about nothing but the praises of wealth. That is true, he said. Yes, that is very true. But may I ask you another question? What do you consider to be the greatest blessing which you have reaped from your wealth? One, he said, of which I could not expect easily to convince of others. But let me tell you, Socrates, for when a man thinks himself to be near death, fears and cares enter into his mind, which he had never had before. The tales of a world below and the punishment which is exacted there of deeds done here were once a laughing matter to him, but now he is tormented with the thought that they may be true either from the weakness of age, or because he is now drawing near to that other place, he has a clearer view of these things. Suspicions and alarms crowd thickly upon him, and he begins to reflect and consider what wrong he has done to others. And when he finds that the sum of his transgressions is great, he will many a times like a child start up in his sleep for fear, and he is filled with dark forebodings. But to him, who is conscious of no sin, sweet hope, as Pindar charmingly said, is the kind nurse of his age. Hope, he says, cherishes the soul of him who lives in justice and holiness, and is the nurse of his age, and the companion of his journey, hope which is mightest to sway the restless soul of a man. How admirable are his words, and the great blessing of riches, I do not say to every man, but to a good man is that he has no occasion to deceive or defraud others, either intentionally or unintentionally. And when he departs to the world below, he is not in any apprehension about offerings due to the gods or debts which he owes to men. Now to this peace of mind the possession of wealth greatly contributes. And therefore I say that, setting one thing against another of many advantages which wealth has to give, to a man of sense this is in my opinion the greatest. Well, Cephalus, I replied, but as concerning justice, what is it? To speak the truth or to pay your debts? No more than this. And even to this are there no exceptions? Suppose that a friend in his right mind has deposited arms with me, and he asks for them when he is not in his right mind. Ought I to give them back to him? No one would say that I ought or that I should be right in doing so any more than they would say that I ought to always speak the truth to one who is in his condition. You are quite right, he replied. But then, I said, speaking the truth and paying your debts is not a correct definition of justice. Quite correct, Socrates, if Simonides is to be believed, said Polemarchus, interposing. I fear, said Cephalus, that I must go now, for I have to look after the sacrifices and I hand over the argument to Polemarchus and the company. Is not Polemarchus your heir, I said? 
To be sure, he answered and went away laughing to the sacrifices. Tell me then, O thou heir of the argument, what does Simonides say, and according to you truly say about justice? He said that the repayment of debt is just, and in saying so he appears to me to be right. I should be so sorry to doubt the word of such a wise and inspired man, but his meaning, though probably clear to you, is the reverse of clear to me, for he certainly does not mean, as we were just saying now, that I ought to return a deposit of arms or anything else to one who asked for it when he is not in his right senses, and yet a deposit cannot be denied to be a debt. True, then when the person who asks me is not in his right mind, I am by no means to make the return? Certainly not. When Simonides said that the repayment of debt was justice, he did not mean to include that case. Certainly not, for he thinks that a friend ought always to do good to a friend and never evil. You mean that the return of a deposit of gold, which is to the injury of the receiver, if the two parties are friends, is not the repayment of a debt? Is that what you would imagine him to say? Yes. And our enemies also to receive what we owe them? To be sure, he said, they are to receive what we owe them. And an enemy, as I take it, owes to an enemy that which is due or proper to him. That is to say, evil. Simonides then, after the manner of poets, was seen to have spoken darkly of the nature of justice. But he just really meant to say that justice is the giving to each man what is proper to him, and this he termed as debt. That must have been his meaning, he said. By heaven, I replied, and if we asked him what due or proper thing is given by medicine, and to whom, what answer do you think that he would make to us? He would surely reply that medicine gives drugs and meat and drink to human bodies, and what due and proper thing is given by cookery, and to what? Seasoning to food. And what is that which justice gives, and to whom? If, Socrates, we are to be guided at all by the analogy of the preceding instances, then justice is the art which gives good to friends and evil to enemies. And who is best able to do good to his friends and evil to his enemies in the time of sickness? The physician, or when they are on a voyage amid the perils of sea, the pilot. And in what sort of actions, or with a view to what result, is the just man most able to do harm to his enemy and good to his friends, in going to war against one and in making alliances with the other? But when a man is well, my dear Polemarchus, there is no need of a physician, and he who is not on a voyage has no need of a pilot that in time of peace justice will be of no use. I'm very far from thinking so. You think that justice may be in use of peace as well as in war? Yes. Like husbandry for the acquisition of corn? Yes. Or like shoemaking for the acquisition of shoes? That is what you mean? Yes. And what similar use or power of acquisition has justice in time of peace? In contracts, Socrates, justice is of use. And by contracts you mean partnerships. Exactly. But is the just man or the skillful player a more useful and better partner at a game of draughts? The skillful player. 
and in the laying of bricks and stones is the just man a more useful or better partner than the builder? Quite the reverse. Then in what sort of partnership is the just man a better partner than the harp player? As in playing the harp, the harp player is certainly a better partner than the just man. Yes, Polemarchus, but surely not in the use of money. For you do not want a just man to be your counsellor in the purchase or sale of a horse. A man who is knowing about horses would be better for that, would he not? Certainly. And when you want to buy a ship, the shipwright or the pilot would be better? True. Then what is that joint use of silver or gold in which the just man is to be preferred? When you want a deposit to be kept safely. You mean, when money is not wanted but allowed to lie? Precisely. That is to say, justice is useful when money is useless. That is the inference. And when you want to keep a pruning hook safe, then justice is useful to the individual and to the state. But when you want to use it, then the art of the vine dresser? Clearly. And when you want to keep a shield or a liar and not use them, you would say that justice is useful. But when you want to use them, then the art of the soldier or the musician. Certainly. And so of all other things, justice is useful when they are useless, and useless when they are useful. That is the inference. Then justice is not good for much. But let us consider this further point. Is not he who can best strike a blow in a boxing match or in any kind of fighting, best able to ward off a blow? Certainly. And he who is most skillful in preventing or escaping from a disease is best able to create one. True. And he is the best god of a camp who is best able to steal a march upon the enemy? Certainly. Then he who is a good keeper of anything is also a good thief. That, I suppose, is to be inferred. Then if the just man is good at keeping money, he is good at stealing it. That is implied in the argument. Then after all, the just man has turned out to be a thief. And this is a lesson which I suspect you must have learnt out of Homer. For he, speaking of Autolycus, the maternal grandfather of Odysseus, who was a favourite of his, affirms that he was excellent above all men in theft and perjury. And so you, Homer and Simonides, are agreed that justice is an art of theft, to be practised, however, for the good of friends and for the harm of enemies. That was what you were saying? No, certainly not that, though I do not know now what I did say, but I still stand by the latter words. Well, there is another question. By friends and enemies, do we mean those who are so really, or only in seeming? Surely, he said, a man may have expected to love those whom he thinks is good, and to hate those whom he thinks is evil. Yes, but do not persons often err about good and evil? Many who are not good seem to be so, and conversely. That is true. Then to them, the good will be enemies, and the evil will be their friends. True. And in that case, they will be right in doing good to the evil, and evil to the good. Clearly. But the good are just, and would not do any injustice. True. Then according to your argument, it is just to injure those who do no wrong? Nay, Socrates, the doctrine is immoral. 
then I suppose we ought to do good to the just and harm to the unjust. I like that better. Many a man who is ignorant of human nature has friends who are bad friends, and in that case he ought to do harm to them, and he has good enemies whom he ought to benefit. But if so, we shall be saying the very opposite of that, which we affirm to be the meaning of Simonides. Very true, he said. I think that we had better correct an error into which we have seemed to fall into the use of the words friend and enemy. What was the error, Polemarchus? I asked. We assume that he is a friend who seems to be, or who is thought good. And how is the error to be corrected? We should rather say that he is a friend who is, as well as seems good, and that he who seems only and is not good, only seems to be and is not a friend. And of an enemy, the same may be said. You would argue that the good are our friends and the bad are enemies? Yes. And instead of saying simply as we did first, that it is just to do good to our friends and harm to our enemies, we should further say, it is just to do good to our friends when they are good and harm to our enemies when they are evil. Thank you.